as they're making their way out of the fort, the story goes that Sumter's men looked into the wagon and began to see some of their stuff that Maxwell had plundered. Mm -hmm. And they became very angry. It said the officers had to hold these people back from murdering the British. They were under a flag of truce at this point in time with the surrender of the fort. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution. Walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are again with Andy Thomas, the curator of the Casey Historical Museum, and David Brinkman, local historian and archaeologist of the Casey Historical Museum Commission. So today's episode, we're going to talk about Fort Granby and the Revolutionary War. Uh, his history man likes to constant. We, we need a niche. That's our niche, the Revolutionary War. Fort Granby is the site of... Uh, some interesting happenings during the Revolutionary War, and oftentimes they are uh, washed away with history. So, uh, love to hear from y'all and about that history. And uh, I'm going to sit back and let y'all tell tell me about it. Well, I think first of all, we want to talk about the establishment of a trading post here in 1765 by Kershaw and Chestnut, who were merchants and businessmen from Camden and they built a, a trading post over here as well. They also had a trading post in Camden, and I think Kershaw is where they also had a, another one, kind of like the Walmarts of their day, I guess. This trading post was located on the river, the Congaree River. There was a ferry near the uh, trading post, so you could facilitate trade from the east to the west side of the river. There was the old Cherokee path that passed by the trading post. By that time, it was the old state road that state road went from the coast to the mountains of South Carolina. And there was also an east-west road that crossed here from Camden to Augusta. So uh, this trading post occupied an important strategic location in the backcountry of South Carolina. And so, uh, of course, we know that the Revolutionary War breaks out in New England. And for the first part of the war, New England and the Middle Atlantic states are where all the action takes place and in the theater of war and whatnot. And then, of course, the British come up with a new strategy and they decide that they're going to take uh, the South. And hopefully, if they can take the South, they can then move up and uh, take the rest of America. And, of course, they, they take Savannah, Georgia in 1779. And then in 1780, Charleston falls to the British. And with the fall of Charleston, the British spread out into the South Carolina backcountry. And the British began to build and construct forts and outposts, outposts that will um, facilitate their communication lines, um, will also facilitate their provisioning lines. And so one of the places that they see as strategically important is this trading post here at the Congarees. And so they right up one day the owners are there and they told them that uh, this is now the you know this is theirs now and the british kicked the owners out or the people you know running the trading post for mr kershaw and mr chestnut they proceed to build a palisade wall around the trading post they also uh put a powder magazine in there i think they create an, an abris around the the site and they proceed to call this uh, uh, Fort Granby. Now, why Granby? 
Well, Granby was the name of a British hero who had fought in Europe during the what we call the French and Indian War, but what Europeans call the, the Seven Years' War. They, they chose this British hero to name this uh, post that they put here in he was, South Carolina. He was the Marquis of Granby, was his title. I see. Which is really nothing, but um, he, he was different. He was a, a true hero and um, very well loved. And, and you see different places in the colony that took on the name Granby because of him. It looks like the British are going to overwhelm South Carolina. As we know, you know, if you, you follow the history of South Carolina, uh, the, the revolution in South Carolina, you know, things seem to be going well from the British, especially with the, the Battle of Camden and uh, the debacle there with Gates and, and whatnot. Um, but um, as we get towards the end of that year, um, we, the Patriots begin to have some victories. Uh, Kings Mountain uh, is one of the victories. And then, of course, the following year in January is the Great Battle of Cowpens. And the, the Patriots and Nathaniel Green kind of get their footing under themselves again. And Nathaniel Green is very interested in pushing the British out of South Carolina. And to do that, he wants to um, take out some of these forts and outposts that the British have established as communication points and as um, strategic supply points and whatnot. And so... Fort Granby becomes of interest, especially to Thomas Sumter, who is waging the war under um, Nathaniel Green, or as part of Nathaniel Green's army. So the rumor gets around in February 1781 that Granby's running low on supplies. This is an opportunity for Thomas Sumter to attack Granby. And so he gathers an army together, um, they march out, they get to the, the congaree, they, um, they overwhelm the guards on the, the ferry and cross the river with this force, and then they begin to surround the fort. But unfortunately, the fort has been tipped off by a spy, and the people in the fort, they know that the Americans are coming, and they begin the assault on the fort, and Sumter's men are pushed back. Uh, in the first assault. Um, and that was in May, right? No, no, this is still yeah, this February. Is, this, this is, is still the first, yeah, 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 this is the one under Sumter, okay. so, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's two battles in Fort Grammy. There's the, the first battle in February, and then there's a follow-up battle in May, so we're talking about the first one. So when they come here, and I'm going to stop you for just a second, when they come here to the museum, and this is a, was this a reconstruction of that particular main building? In Fort Granby, yep, right? Yep. But this this structure would have been closer to the river, right? And it would have been surrounded by trenches and abatis, and it would be a fairly formidable uh, location to try to attack at that point, correct? Yeah, so there, there would have been about uh, 300, 350 um, troops located in and around the fort. Um, most of those were loyalists. It's hard to it's hard to imagine that as you as you're in this building that you have three hundred something you know in this right in this area uh, even if you're saying okay this this building was closer to the river and uh, the fortifications are just hard to imagine that you're able to 
hold that many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, same is true at 96 when you go to that mm-hmm. star fort up there and they say how many people are actually in that star fort and you're just like, that is just unbelievable to have mm-hmm. that many people in there. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I, I, I digress. Go ahead. And, uh, so they, they make one assault and that fails and then what? Well, they, they began to use tobacco bales to try to move up on the fort, you know, okay. and, and fire behind the tobacco bales and stuff like that. They're only mildly successful in, you know, moving the lines forward and whatnot. And then they, they also build something called a Mayhem Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and the quote is from Sumter, or from one of the uh, people recording the battle, his marksmen mounted upon a temporary structure of rails, but the, the British refused to yield to Sumter. And Sumter's men began to run out of ammunition in their battle with the British. Now, over in Camden is Lord Francis Ralden, um, who is the British commander in this part of the South. And he, when he learns that Fort Granby is under siege, he dispatches about 600 men and 200 cavalry under a Colonel Wellborn Ellis Doyle, who's with the Volunteers of Ireland. They also have artillery pieces that they are bringing with them. Um, and so I think uh, Sumter's going to realize pretty quickly once he, his spies and his people tell him what's on the move, you know, that there's, there's going to be a problem here. Um, he's running out of ammunition. There's a relief force on the way. And, and he's almost going to be caught in a trap unless he figures out a way out of it. And so before uh, Lieutenant Colonel Doyle gets here, you know, Sumter finds his way out of the trap. He, he cro- recrosses the river, but he does leave men surrounding the fort, especially after the, the British, you know, they come in, they relieve the fort, you know, maybe a couple of weeks, and then they're, you know, these troops are being transferred elsewhere or whatever, but there's still Sumter's men out there and they're still, interested in taking this fort so they're still kind of surrounding it um, during that that time period so there were guerrilla raids that took place over the next couple of months by these so Sumter's men never actually i mean the better part of his army moved away but he left remnants behind to kind of keep an eye on things and to keep them uh occupied so to speak mm-hmm. so that they it kind of kept them in in mm-hmm. check right and, and, mm-hmm. and kept them isolated or or at least stagnant trying to hold on to this fort. Is that, is that what you're telling me? Mm-hmm. And what I did, well, I guess what I didn't uh, talk about was that uh, he supposedly s- destroyed as many provisions as he could. He, he burnt the powder magazine. Um, so, that, you know, or the powerhouse for the fort. And so mm-hmm. there were some things that he did as, his, as he was moving out of here, but he realized that he had to retreat, right. you know, right. for a superior force or whatnot. But the interest is still there to take this uh, take this fort. How long would it have taken for, for Rowland's men to get from Camden to here? Probably a couple of days, I would imagine. So they would have been well aware. Well, he sent a, a cavalry unit with yeah. them as well. So yeah, so if, if, if they had learned about it, you know, Sumter's approach beforehand through spies and whatnot, they may have actually set off earlier, you know, right. maybe on the 18th right. or the 19th or whatever. Yeah. So... But yeah, so they would have been riding hard, marching hard, you know, to get over here to to relieve the fort. So you said they they started with some guerrilla tactics uh, after Sumter's main body left. 
they kind of hung around the area and just kind of picked off uh, people here and there. Is that what you're saying? Or uh, interdicted on some supply chain stuff? Yeah. Or what, yeah. what, what's going on? Yeah, I, I think that kind of characterizes that period, you know, trying to just keep the British, you know, in, in their place or whatever, in the fort or whatever. But there were some guerrilla raids that took place during the, that period. So General Sumter was still interested in taking Fort Granby. And Sumter had to also deal with his men as far as like uh, how much time they served because, you know, men only served for a certain number of time and, and whatnot. And so Sumter had to provide bonuses to those that decided that they would serve more time. I think it was like usually 60 days. So Sumter kind of provided bonuses to, to get these uh, people to serve more. He also gave slaves to some of the soldiers that would serve longer. So in April of that year, Sumter led about 500 troops south of the Congaree River. They attacked the guards at Friday's Ferry, which is the, the ferry that went from east to west that we talked about on the river, and they drove those guards off. And this cavalry spread out and took control of Friday's Ferry so that by May the 2nd, the second siege of Fort Granby was well on its way. And there was a Colonel Thomas Taylor who continued to siege the fort for Sumter during this time period. After they took the ferry, his men actually surrounded the fort okay. in a more organized way than these guerrilla battles that had taken right. place earlier. Now, in the fort is um, Andrew Maxwell. He's the commander of the fort for the British, and he's from Maryland. And um, he is over, like we said, about 300, 350 soldiers. There's also 60 Hessians. Yeah, about 60 Hessians. Yeah. Okay. That are serving. And, but most of the soldiers are loyalists. Um, they're, they're not drawn from the regular army or whatnot. You got yep. stuff about these Hessians, don't you? Yeah, so the, the beginning of all this, when they attacked the ferry site, there were 13 British loyalists that were killed in that action. Okay. And then they chased back, I think, another four or five that were killed trying to get back to the fort. So there was quite a bit of bloodshed at that stage, that first day. Where that occurred at is just really just a, a couple hundred feet from the dig site. And we have found a number of musket balls and shots. Okay. Um, we can't really date those, but we did find a Hessian button, which is like a, it's a three-legged eagle um, with Latin written on it, which I think means um, in God we trust. Okay. Something like All that. Right. So it's a, it's a very unique button that the Hessians wore. So, so one of the questions is, was were they a part of this? group that was at the ferry. Um, or did somebody or, pick up a Hessian button and yeah, put yeah. it on their uniform? That's yeah, it could have been. I mean, when eventually when they lost the fort, you know, they marched these guys out and they may have just thrown their <laughs> right, their right. uniforms off. <laughs> That's right. But That's yeah. right. in fact, where we found it is actually in the area where it could be slave quarters. I see. In Granby. And who knows, maybe it was uniforms passed down to the slaves. We, we don't. We may never know that, but... Fascinating yeah, story. Yeah. All right. Taylor is surrounding or starting the siege again, mm -hmm. and this is May at this point. Is that correct? Right. So during that time period, there is a battle taking place over at Fort Mott, and um, Sumter actually is trying to participate and wants to get over to help with that battle, but when he gets over there, he finds that Fort Mott has already been attacked by Lee and Marion. Uh, We're talking about Light Horse Harry Lee. Right. right. Mm -hmm. okay. That's right. Yeah, he'll play an important part later. Okay. 
and uh, Francis Marion. And so Sumter turned his troops towards Orangeburg to um, fight the battle there. During that period, Sumter realized he needed a cannon to take Fort Granby. And he had actually approached Nathaniel Green about it. And Nathaniel Green had, had promised him a cannon. And when Sumter took off for Orangeburg, Green had the cannon for him, but Sumter was nowhere to be found. And so I think some, I mean, I think Nathaniel Green was a little bit exasperated with Sumter. And so he then ordered Lee, who uh, is Light Horse Harry Lee, or William Lee III, who would be the um, future father of Robert E. Lee. He served, he served in here in South Carolina with Lee's Legion out of Virginia. So he orders um, Light Horse Harry Lee and his troops, along with Sumter's troops that are surrounding the fort, to take the fort. There's also a report that, uh, once again, uh, spies have reported these actions, these movements or whatnot, and the rumor is that Lord Francis Ralden is moving out with another large army, you know, to, to try to protect Fort Granby. This is in May, and uh, Lee begins his attack on May the 15th on the fort. And Taylor is still here. Taylor is still here. That's okay. right. So yeah. still some of Sumter's troops are still here. That's right. Okay. All right. So, uh, Lee erected a battery on one side of the uh, fort, and um, it's the next morning, which is the 16th, there's a dense, dense fog over the Congaree. And he's able to push those cannons up to the edge of the river, and they begin the bombardment of, of Fort Granby. Now, I'm gonna stop you right there. Uh, there was a question of, was one of those cannon located across the river over in Richland County? Yes, the, no, the you're painting, your there's head. a painting that shows that. There's a painting that shows that. <laughs> yeah. Did that really happen? So, yeah. I mean, Rison County. <laughs> they you, try to claim that. <laughs> they, they try to claim it. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but we don't know. There's no evidence of that? or. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. You okay, know. all right. I, I, I will say, <laughs> that, you know, uh, the, the river was, the, we have a painting here at the KCB. It shows it really close up, but it wasn't as close up in the painting um, that was kind of artistic license to show it as close as that. But you're probably correct. They were probably set up across the river, you know, to, to, to begin this action. That would be yes. kind of a long shot, though. But. yeah. Um, because it's not really, the fort's not really on the river. They lobbed two cannonballs into the fort, and then um, Lee's legionaries, um, they cut off the pickets that were surrounding the fort, and then Lee was ready for stage two of the siege, and at that point, he offered the commander of the fort, Andrew Maxwell, um, an opportunity to surrender. Now, let's talk about Andrew Maxwell, because he was... uh, he wasn't really a fighter. Andrew Maxwell, like I said, he was from Maryland. Um, he was uh, he was a loyal British subject. He'd been assigned this post. He'd been given the command there. But he didn't really want to have a fight. He was a plunderer. He had been um, plundering things from around the area for a long, long time. Included furniture, uh, silverware, slaves animals off farms, um, you know, you name it, it wasn't um, nailed down. He was going to take it. He wasn't interested in winning the hearts and minds of the people. Right, right, right. <laughs> so he had developed a big loot 
of <laughs> materials, you know, at, at Fort Granby. He walked out and had a discussion with Lee. Lee, I think, is kind of thinking in the back of his head, too. Is Lord Ralden on the way? Does he have a larger force? You know, that kind of stuff. And so what he hears from Maxwell is kind of, uh, it, it's very tempting, you know, and, and he pretty much tempts Lee to accept a deal with him. And that deal is going to be, hey, if you'll let me take some of my stuff out of here, <laughs> then I'm going to, you know, surrender Fort Granby to you. Basically, that's what happens. Maxwell packs up a wagon full of materials that he's looted and taken from the countryside. And they begin to make their way out of the fort. As they're making their way out of the fort, the story goes that Sumter's men looked into the wagon and began to see some of their stuff that Maxwell had plundered. And they became very angry. It said the officers had to hold these people back from murdering the British. They were under a flag of truce at this point in time with the surrender of the fort. I, I bet so. There's a slap in their face here. The, they're not serving under Lee. Lee is a Virginian, right? Lee has made this compact with Maxwell, who's not even from this area either. He's from Maryland. Right. And Sumter's men are all from South Carolina, and they're seeing everything taken from them, right? And so, and they're fighting for their very homes, and many of these men, their homes were burned by the British to begin with. So, interesting. What happens is the men get angry. The officers try to hold them back. This gets back, of course, to Sumter. Sumter, at some point, threatens to resign because of this tapestry has happened to his men and his command or whatever. Daniel Green talks him out of it, thank goodness. The story goes that Lee decided it was a little hot in South Carolina for him and maybe he should go fight some battles over in Georgia. And I think he ended up fighting some battles over in Augusta to kind of get out of the Midlands of South Carolina. Now, I will tell you that we do know what happened when when Lee took the I just want to kind of give you an an idea of what was captured because they did write up a report. There was 8,028 musket cartridges, 192 muskets, 86 bayonets, 100 carriage boxes, 63 rifles, 3,000 flints, 120 pounds of powder, 20 12-pounder canister shot, one drum, three two-pound cannonades, two five-and-a-half-inch housers, and so these were the type of materials that the British had been moving around to their armies in the back country, and these were provisioned, and they were there at the fort. So uh, this was a blow to the British, as every fall of every fort in the back country was to the British at this point in time. But Sumter actually tried to make up for some of this with his men by um, distributing uh, livestock and slaves uh, for some of the loot that Maxwell had um, taken with him. And it's kind of interesting because this was a this was a structure that it did change hands twice more because it wasn't really occupied um, with a large force. I mean, there's other battles taking place. The Americans are really trying hard to push the British out of South Carolina, and, and there's you know these other battles that are taking place out there. We've got two more stories um, connected with our museum and the Revolutionary War. One of the stories is about the Lord Cornwallis table. It's a table we have here at the museum. It's on loan from McKissick Museum. Uh, supposedly, it was Lord Cornwallis's table. An American soldier found it, and he brought it back to this area. And then through marriage, it ended up with the Casey family. 
And we actually have a photograph from 1898 showing where the family placed a table outside of the house because they were so proud they had Lord Cornwallis's table. Now, there's no way we can say it was really Lord Cornwallis's table or not. Um, and there's a lot of stories about it. Um, there's a story that was found at the at the Lord Cornwallis's field camp at Camden. We're not talking about an ornate, huge dining room table, are we? No. We're talking about small tea tables. Okay. We're talking about All right. something that could be put in the back of a wagon and move from camp to camp. That's or right. Post to post. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's one of the stories. Obviously, you know that story kind of doesn't um, fit the facts of history. Another story was that um, Lord Cornwallis was out playing cards on his table and Americans were sneaking up on him and when he realized that he just ran away and of course the Americans lifted the table, you know, at that point. Okay. Most likely story would be Cornwallis cannot catch Nathaniel Green. He just seems to be moving very fast with his army. Cornwallis is kind of weighed down with this baggage train he has. Um, he's fighting a European-style war in the American backcountry. Uh, European-style war may um, mean that in Europe, when you're fighting your, battle, your battles with the French, you might set up a nice ornate tent and lay it out, you know, just as fine as anything a nobleman, you know, could dine with. And, you know, so he had tables and he had silverware and he had this tent, and, you know, all the stuff that you know, the nobility would have taken with them in, in these battles in Europe. South Carolina backcountry, that just is not, you're not going to be sitting down to dine with most of your enemy here. And so Cornwallis decided to be able to catch green. He's going to dump a lot of his baggage and burn a lot of his baggage. And so it may have been that this table actually was a piece of that furniture that didn't get burnt, but um, was taken so back. Is there to any there. indication that it came from somewhere other than South Carolina? I mean, was it made in Britain, England? Was it made in. So in a European country, or do we know? We, we don't know. We do know that the, the style and the, um, the decade it was made was the period of the okay. American Revolution. So that's, that's what we do know yeah, about very it. Very good. All right. What else? About the third story. It's about a famous spy, uh, a, a oh. woman spy here oh. in Casey. Oh. So, excited. Here we go. So um, the story goes that uh, Nathaniel Green needed to get a message delivered to Thomas Sumter. And to do that, there's probably about 70 miles of British-occupied territory between Green and Sumter. Um, this is in the time period after the fall of 96. Um, Lord Ralden has actually marched back from the relief of 96, and he has reoccupied Fort Granby. He's coming through here. But he knows right on his heels is Nathaniel Green. And so this is the time period when this story supposedly took place, July 2nd, 3rd, 4th of 1781. So Nathaniel Green, he realizes that if he sends a man that immediately they will probably be apprehended, you know, stopped, you know, searched, whatever, with this message. Um, so he's, he's looking for someone else to carry it. And a young lady steps forward, and this, the story... Um, so it kind of has developed these mythologies and whatnot, but supposedly in the story, Emily's um, father was an invalid and could not serve in the revolution, but she told him that, you know, my family is just as proud as anybody else's family, and, you know, we want to show that we're just as patriotic, and I'd be glad to do this, you know, this task or whatever. Um, of course, Breen is kind of apprehensive about that. 
She's got some moxie. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Green is kind of a, uh, apprehensive about that, but nevertheless, he writes out his message, folds it, seals it, that kind of stuff. Emily uh, puts it in her um, pocket or her petticoat, but she sets off by horseback. And the first night, because a spy had been at Green's camp, it gets communicated to this family that Emily stops to spend the night with on her on her horseback drive to get to um, Sumter. And supposedly uh, the spy comes up and talks to the family and the family are loyalists and, and they understand what's going on and they're going to capture Emily in the morning. But somehow Emily intuitively knows that this, this family is not meaning very well to her, even though they've invited her to spend the night. So she slips out, you know, before dawn, and she's on the road. So she, you know, this first night, she kind of avoids the, the danger of um, being captured. But it is on the second night that she is captured. Uh, she's a young woman. She's out at night. She's on a horse. Um, you know, she's galloping in the woods, and British soldiers are going to stop her, they, uh, they take her supposedly back to Fort um, Granby. They take her upstairs to Lord Rowden's room, which he's using as his field office. And the story goes that Lord, Lord Rowden, Rowden said, um, I think you're a spy, but I'm too much of a British gentleman to search you, so I'm going to send for my serving lady. And he locked her in the room, supposedly. Emily had to figure out a way to get out of this because she knew that the message is contraband. So she um, she takes the message out, opens it, breaks the seal, reads it, memorizes it as best she can, rips it up into shreds, and to get rid of the evidence, she puts it in her mouth, she chews it, and she swallows it, and down it goes. <laughs> and so she eats the message, and the serving lady comes up. They can find nothing on Emily. So Ralden allows Emily to carry on with her travels. He's still suspicious of her, so his men escort her to a friend's house. Emily, as soon as the British are gone, she's back on the horse, galloping as hard as she can to Sumter's camp. Supposedly the next day she arrives at Sumter's camp and she delivers the message verbally, you know, to General Sumter. Everybody says, you know, that makes her a true heroine of the American Revolution. Now, there, there are some controversies uh, around this whole story. First of all, the story was first recorded in the 1840s um, by a lady named Ellet. And Ellet was writing a book, Women of the American Revolution, 1848, this book comes out. There's one or two short paragraphs about Emily's story in there. And it doesn't talk about her having the, the first night where she's staying with the family or whatever. And, but there's a lot of oral history about Emily in this area. There's really no documents that we know that you point to that tell this story contemporary, you know, from that contemporary time period. And so the question is, did Emily exist? You know, I'm gonna let David kind of delve into some of that too. Well, where I got involved in this, um, John Howell, who was a, a local historian and had genealogy. To Emily Giger. Now, at one point, the South, you know, uh, the South Carolina historian A.S. Sally actually published something stating that he didn't think she ever existed. But I think there's enough evidence out there that she did. I think that's been kind of discounted now. So we believe she did exist. 
Um, John Howe, um, over his life, he passed away just um, within a, a year or two ago. But we did a little present. We actually came into the museum and filmed a little presentation on all the things he knew about Emily. And um, John had been involved in locating her grave um, because um, nobody really knew where that was. Now, we do know that she married a man named Three Wits. And there's, a, there's an old historic house. We're actually trying to hope that somebody can save it. It was the Three Wits house where she supposedly lived. And the story is that she probably died from complications of childbirth. You know, there's some accounts that she made visits to Granby. She had relatives in Granby. And she would go there and tell the story about what happened. But so she, she died fairly young. We didn't know where her gravesite was, but John uncovered a article that was in the state newspaper. It was about the year 1900, I think, of a member of the Three Wits family, and he was a he was a medical doctor. Um, he was getting up there in the years. He was probably 80 or 90 at the time, and he documented in this story where Emily Giger was buried on their property, and he gave it relative to another specific grave, which is there today. There's, there's okay. the, the one relative to that position, there was nothing there. Um, John went out, they, they did some things. Do you have the, what the, is it, the... Um, there upstairs, the yeah, dowsing rods? The, the dowsing rods, yeah. He actually used that and found what he thought were two graves. So the, um, John and some others hired um, some GPR experts and they came out and um, sure enough, right at that spot, they found an adult grave and a child's grave right next to it. So, so at that point, they decided to mark the grave. You know, we can't dig them up and do DNA on it, but um, they just marked the grave as that being hers. So, so that's how I kind of got brought into it. The, the thing that um, disturbs me a little bit about it is the difficulty in the genealogy that we have. We don't really know who her parents were. Um, you know, several people um, claim that they're related to her, and you get into the genealogy and it's very confusing. So it's kind of strange. I was telling Andy that this morning. Isn't it strange that somebody that would have been well known or famous that, you know, it seems like everybody would be claiming to be her relative, you know, from that right. period on. And right. something like that just would not have been lost so easily. It's a great story, and um, mm -hmm. there are, you know, I, I think she definitely did exist. But it's one of those stories that you have so much information that you're like, if there's not some truth to it, that's a heck of a story to make up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. if there's not yeah. some sort of truth uh, to it. I mean, for you to say, oh yeah, she got, uh, you know, the story is she got locked away upstairs till they could find, you know, someone to search her. That sounds like something that would actually happen, right? Yeah, so, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, so, yeah, with the British. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I believe that she could have existed, and uh -huh. I think there's no proof that she did or didn't. But on a larger, in a larger way, I think the fact that you're talking about women and you're talking about the American Revolution and you're talking about how women contributed mm -hmm. to the Patriot effort to right. win the American Revolution she's almost like an archetype, you know, right. Emily um, right. represents that for this yeah. area. And it was right in that momentum change that just 
turned everything around, right? He ended the revolution, right? Wow. It's, and, yeah, it's a, and it's a fantastic story. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it really does. It has its twists and turns and, and that yeah, kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And I think they called uh, Emily the... Uh, somebody had written the Paul Revere of South Carolina uh, in some way. I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so... Well, what a great story. Tell our listeners a little bit, uh, again, uh, what they would find here at the museum and uh, maybe some events that are coming up and how they can reach you, uh, that sort of thing. Okay, so Casey Museum um, is a great value if you haven't ever been by to see us. Uh, we're open um, Tuesday through Friday from 9 to 5 and on Saturdays and Sundays from 2 to 5. And our prices on the other days are very reasonable. Uh, $3 adults, $2 senior, $2 for people with military ID, $1 for children under 12. On Sunday afternoons, we're free. So that makes it really good. Um, we have uh, four rooms here in the museum. Uh, we have a, a, a room that has a tremendous collection of Native American objects that were donated to our museum, five to 6,000 pieces. Um, we have objects going back to Clovis points, which are some of the earliest, all the way through the historic period. We have a lot of objects from South Carolina, but we also have objects from all over the country. Um, we have a lot of history that we tell here about the colonial period, obviously, because we had such a long colonial period here in Casey. Um, we have uh, uh, some objects that tell that 19th century period and then 20 and 21st century. So we're very diverse you know, the, the, the different things you're going to find here at the museum. You can you can look at our social media account. We do have special lectures and things that we're doing. But our, we've got a big event coming up on April the 1st in conjunction with uh, Tartan Day South, which is a big Celtic festival here in the Columbia area. Tartan Day South uh, goes for several days, but the main day is Saturday, April the 1st, and they open their gates at 9. There is a you would have to pay, you know, to get in admission-wise. You can check out their website. I would just Google Tartan Day South. It'll, you know, come up and give you a, a schedule and, you know, what's going on. But at that event, we're going to have something called the Colonial Village. The Colonial Village is um, going to be a group of experts talking about the story of the colonial period and revolution in the Midlands. David's going to be there. He's He'll have objects. Uh, that he's dug up in Granby and from the fort, um, Congaree too. Um, I've got uh, a, um, a lady that's going to be weaving. Um, we've got a, a guy that's making um, the rifles from wood. Um, I've got a blacksmith. I've got a brick maker. Um, I've got um, just various craftsmen and artisans doing these traditional crafts, candle maker, you know, things that you would have seen during the colonial times. And some of these will be hands-on for children. Um, and so that, that makes that a really nice uh, way to kind of be introduced to, you know, how they're living, how they're accomplishing these things, whether it's making brick or weaving a, a piece of cloth or, or dyeing a piece of cloth. We've got a textile dyer that's going to be there too. So, um, so that's a really exciting event we're looking forward to on April the 1st. Outstanding. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.